0: Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff
1: Cummings. We've heard many different types of songs nominated for the Oscar in the past 22 episodes. We've heard songs performed in a non-English language, those that barely appeared in the film, one that didn't even appear in a film, and songs that really didn't have anything to do with the movie in which it appears. The Academy revised its rules for the Song Award in 1954 to take care of the first two things, but still wasn't ready to demand that the eligible songs have some purpose. As far as songs not written in English, the person who translates it to English is not eligible for an Oscar nomination since they are just acting as translators. But if the translator creates lyrics that are different in meaning and tone than the original lyrics in the other language, then both lyricists get the nomination. In the case of Mona Lisa and Down Argentine Way, two nominated songs that were sung in an Italian and Spanish, respectively, the people who translated the lyrics couldn't get the nomination because the song did not change its meaning when sung in English. I believed Carlos Albert should have been credited at the least, for translating Johnny Mercer's lyrics for Down Argentine Way in 1940. And I wonder if there had been a push to have those translators listed as nominees after the unknown person helped Jay Livingston translate Mona Lisa for the Italian version sung in Captain Carey, USA. And to make it absolutely clear that such a song such as 1945's Love Letters, which didn't have a lyric performed in the movie, is not eligible for future nominations... The rules state that both the lyrics and melody have to appear in the body of the film or during the credits. Stating that the eligible songs could be performed under the credits is just another reason why we're going to see more of these types of songs in the very near future. As far as making sure that the songs nominated in 1954 have some purpose in the film, well, that's up for debate. Before we go on, remember that I'm going to be talking about the major plot points throughout the episode. The first one we'll discuss is The High and the Mighty, which reunites Dmitry Tiomkin with lyricist Ned Washington two years after they reshaped the movie song with High Noon. John Wayne was a producer of The High and the Mighty, and John Wayne rarely hid his extreme jealousy that Gary Cooper found success with High Noon. In accepting Gary Cooper's Best Actor Oscar in March 1954, John Wayne wondered aloud why his agent hadn't fought for him to be in High Noon. But if John Wayne couldn't get High Noon, he could at least nab the composer for his own film. This Oscar nomination for the title song almost didn't happen because the studio heads at Warner Brothers were not too thrilled about the audience reaction to the song at a sneak preview. So the song was removed from the opening titles for the official prints that went to theaters for the film's July 1954 release, And the only thing heard as the movie begins is a sweeping instrumental with a romantic theme over images of an airplane in the clouds, followed by people frolicking on the beach. The scene switches to an airfield where a man whose face we don't see yet continues to whistle Tiomkin's theme.
2: Fella, ain't you Dan Roman?
1: When Tiomkin found out that the song was removed from the official film, he went into overdrive and pressured the studio to reinsert the song in the Los Angeles prints so it could qualify for an Oscar. Otherwise, the song would have fallen victim to the love letters rule that I mentioned earlier, specifically that both lyrics and melody must appear in the body of the film or during the credits. The studio did as Tjomkin asked, not because they were afraid of Tjomkin or anything, but because the song was doing well on the Billboard charts and making it eligible for an Oscar could give Warner Brothers a chance for its first win in that category since The Lullaby of Broadway way back in 1935. The song appeared in the film after The End, when the audience was already leaving the theater.
3: I give my...
1: Johnny Desmond on the vocal, including the whistling, which became the most popular feature of the song, and would keep the main theme running through the two and a half hour film. John Wayne's character is called Whistling Dan because he likes to whistle, so having Dan whistle Tiopkin's theme helped greatly. Desmond's recording of the actual song got as high as number 28 on the Billboard charts in summer 1954. Maybe it's because the song's lyrics, essentially a declaration of love, have nothing to do with the film's plot, or because it gets in the way of the much more popular melody. Washington did write another version that was never recorded with lyrics that described pilots as high and mighty. At the end of the song, God is mentioned as the ultimate high and mighty, asking those listening to say a prayer of thanks. Since these lyrics were never recorded, I'll read them for you. See the high and mighty, as they ride the sky with a watchful eye. Men who know of the silver glow in each little star above, see the high and mighty in their steady flight throughout the lonely night. On they fly till you and I are safe with the ones we love. Winds roar, rains pour, once more, happy landing. Thank the high and mighty, say a silent prayer to the man up there, giving thanks to the one who holds the whole world together with love, love, love. These lyrics definitely relate to the film, and I don't know why they were rejected in favor of the typical love ballad. Though the song was not a popular hit with the public, they went mad for the instrumental version, complete with whistling. Oscar-winning composer Victor Young released the best-selling instrumental version in summer 1954, with Muzzy Marcelino whistling on the record. It got as high as number 6 on the Billboard charts, staying on the list for 14 weeks. Tiomkin knew he had to work hard to get the music branch of the Academy to remember his song come Oscar nominations time. He paid for small planes to fly banners advertising the song over Hollywood, definitely a step up from the usual trade ads put in Variety and other publications. Whether it was the skywriting or something else, Tiomkin and Washington got that nomination for The High and the Mighty. Teomkin also received a nomination for writing the score, likely on the strength of the melody of the theme song that was filling the airwaves. This gave him the chance to win as many as four Oscars in two years and become the first person to win two score awards and two song awards. If you ever catch The High and the Mighty, you won't hear the song in the film. Warner Brothers never reinserted the song in its official print after it received the Oscar nomination and never bothered to do it for any home video release many years later. One other thing to note about the song The High and the Mighty is that it is the first song to be nominated from a film released in CinemaScope, the first official widescreen format made available. It used bulkier cameras and increased the budget of the film, but the $6 million box office more than made up for the effort. Though Warner Bros. might have stumbled on the song The High and the Mighty, 20th Century Fox never doubted that the theme song for their romantic drama Three Coins in the Fountain would be a hit. When you have Frank Sinatra singing the tune, it's guaranteed to sell well. Old Blue Eyes never gets on screen credit for performing the song over the opening credits, but fans of Sinatra know it's him. What's interesting about this song is that Sinatra does not appear in the film. Sammy Kahn, Sinatra's close friend, was tasked with writing the song with Jules Stein. And after completing the song in one day, Khan played the song for Sinatra at his home. Now, I should rewind a little bit to give more detail about the song's creation, and much of this comes from Sammy Khan himself in his autobiography called I Should Care. Frank Sinatra was set to star in a musical called Pink Tights with Marilyn Monroe. Stein and Khan were going to write the songs. But when Monroe decided to elope in Japan with Joe DiMaggio instead of fulfill her contractual obligation, 20th Century Fox decided to wait to see if Monroe would change her mind. While they waited, Stein and Kahn had some time to do a favor for producer Sol Siegel, who thought his romantic drama Three Coins in the Fountain could use their talents. There was no film to see at the time, and Siegel apparently wouldn't let them read the script. I guess Stein and Kahn didn't bother to read the 1952 novel on which the movie is based. Anyway, all they knew was that three people are going to throw coins into the Trevi Fountain in Rome looking for love. And in one afternoon, this is what they wrote.
4: Three coins in the fountain Each one seeking happiness Thrown by three hopeful lovers Which one will the fountain bless? Three hearts in the fountain Each heart longing for its home There they lie in the fountain Somewhere in the heart of Rome Which one will the fountain bless? Which one? In and Three coins in the fountain Through the ripples How they shine Just one wish will be granted One heart will wear a valentine Make it mine, make it mine, make it mine.
1: According to Kahn, he and Stein argued over repeating the line, which one will the fountain bless, thinking it stunk. But he didn't seem to have a problem with saying make it mine three times. Stein was likely being obstinate because he had created this animosity toward Hollywood that started back in 1947 when Stein left to write songs for the hit Broadway show High Button Shoes. He didn't like the Hollywood machine, saying in a 1971 interview that, quote, It was a belt. It was a factory. I knew California didn't draw on your talents because you were told what to do. In the end, Stein was pleased with the finished song, knowing that it helped the movie earn a lot of money, some of which went into his pockets. The song is performed over gorgeous shots of the many fountains of Rome, showcasing the new CinemaScope technology. It serves as sort of a pre-overture to the actual opening credits overture, the first time a song has been specifically created for such a purpose. It allows us to enjoy the beauty of what we see and hear without having to read the obligatory credits. We get a reprise of the song with a few new words in the finale when all three of our women meet up at the Trevi Fountain with their male lovers joining them for a happy ending. In Sinatra's version of the song, only one wish was going to be granted, but this time, all three wishes are fulfilled.
0: The fountain's coming to life again.
4: (laughs)
2: Amen. <laughs>
1: Frank Sinatra agreed to record a demo for the studio, which would have been a bare-bones musical accompaniment to Sinatra's voice. But the studio had 60 musicians available that day, and after Sinatra threw a mini tantrum, he decided to record the final version that day. At the time, songwriters got a flat fee for their work and a small royalty if the song becomes a hit. It's the studio who usually rakes in the dough from a hit song. But in the rush to get the song written and recorded, 20th Century Fox forgot to draft a contract retaining the rights to the song, Three Coins in the Fountain. That meant ownership stayed with Stein and Kahn as Sinatra's record soared to number seven on the Billboard charts, played on the radio for the entire summer of 1954, and made the songwriters rich. Once the films also started making money, Siegel pleaded with Kahn and Stein to sell the studio the rights to the song. The deal was made that the songwriters got half and the studio got half. That was an unprecedented deal at the time. If a songwriter got double digits in terms of percentage of ownership, it was deemed a successful deal. Three Coins in the Fountain also officially cemented Sinatra's comeback that had begun a year earlier with the release of From Here to Eternity, and continued into March 1954 with his Oscar win for that movie, and later, an almost number one hit with Young at Heart.
4: Fairy tales can come true It can happen to you If you're young at heart For it's hard you will find To be narrow of mind If you're young at heart You can go to extremes With impossible schemes You can laugh when your dreams Fall apart at the seams And life gets more exciting with each passing day And love is either in your heart or on its way Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth To be young at heart For as rich as you are, it's much better by far to Be Young at Heart.
1: That song was featured in the 1954 film of the same name, which didn't get its title until the song was proven to be a hit. The song was recorded and sold commercially in 1953 before the film was in production, which meant it broke a crucial Academy eligibility rule. Now, speaking of comebacks, Judy Garland was trying to make a big one with the musical remake of A Star is Born. She hadn't made a movie since 1950 when MGM canceled her contract for her unreliable work habits. And just as she had been doing before, Garland was unreliable for filming of A Star is Born. Some days she would show up late. Sometimes she wouldn't show up at all. But when she did, she was magical. That's showcased in very fine form during the performance of the nominated song The Man That Got Away. All of the film versions of A Star is Born involved a fading male star discovering a very talented female. In the 1954 version, James Mason is a struggling film star who stumbles into a nightclub after it closed and finds Garland's Esther Blodgett singing with her band after they had already performed publicly a few hours earlier. In the moment, The song is not related to the plot except that it gives us a great opportunity to see Judy Garland shine when the cameras are rolling. This song is performed on camera in a single 3 minute and 40 second take, with Garland singing live even though there was a playback of the previously recorded song on the set.
2: has run off and undone you that great beginning has seen a final inning don't know what happened it's all a crazy game every trick of his You're on to But fools will be fools And where's he gone to? The road gets rougher It's lonelier and tougher with hope you burn up tomorrow he will turn up. There's just no let up the live long night. Looking for the man that goes
1: Director George Cukor tried several costumes, several lighting changes, and several backgrounds through the fall of 1953, but none of them really suited the song or how he wanted Judy Garland to look during the performance. He finally got the look he wanted when it was filmed in February 1954 using the new Cinemascope widescreen lenses and technicolor process. The look of it convinced Warner Brothers to film the entire movie in widescreen, giving us three songs so far from Cinemascope Films in 1954. Harold Arlen and Ira Gershwin wrote four songs for A Star is Born, but after Warner Brothers sliced 30 minutes off the 3-hour and 15-minute running time, two of those songs were kicked off the film. We're lucky that The Man That Got Away was so crucial to the plot that it couldn't be removed. It gives Judy Garland a chance to sing a torch song that would become a signature song for her rivaled only by Over the Rainbow, which also had music by Harold Arlen. The melody for The Man That Got Away was written for a song he had in mind many years ago with Johnny Mercer, but that song never went beyond the idea stage. Arlen brought that melody out of mothballs, and Gershwin was quick to put lyrics to it. During production, Warner Brothers promoted A Star is Born as the big comeback vehicle for Judy Garland. But when early critic reviews were rather mild, Warner Brothers figured the movie would not be a hit. The studio severely cut back on its advertising budget, including trade ads promoting the film and all of its highlights for Academy Awards consideration. While Dmitry Tiomkin was paying for planes to advertise his song, Warner Brothers was doing next to nothing to give The Man That Got Away a chance at Oscar glory just as they had almost taken the high and the mighty out of Oscar consideration. The recording of The Man That Got Away didn't help promote the song, hardly making a dent in record sales. On the strength of the names behind the song, The Man That Got Away got its Oscar nomination, one of six that the film received. Judy Garland was widely believed to be the frontrunner for Best Actress, but without Warner Brothers doing much promotion for the film during Oscar season, Garland had to hope that her performance and the comeback story would be enough. Judy Garland wasn't the only one who originated an original song nominee and earned an Oscar nomination for acting in 1954. But in Bing Crosby's case, he sang a nominated song and earned his acting nomination for two different films. His acting nomination came in the non-musical drama The Country Girl, where he starred as an alcoholic has-been actor but his fans got to hear those angelic pipes put to work in the musical film White Christmas. Now, this is not a sequel to Holiday Inn, but it's understandable that people automatically think so. The song White Christmas is used in the film. The songs are by Irving Berlin, and the film stars Bing Crosby, but the plot is very different. This time, Crosby goes back to his roots and plays a song and dance man partnered with Danny Kaye. After closing out a tour of their show in Florida, they head to Vermont with sisters played by Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen. It's there that they decide to put on a big show to help Bing and Danny's former army general, and one night, Clooney's character has trouble sleeping. Her sister cooks up a plan for her to go to the kitchen for some food, where Bing is waiting, and hopefully a romance will kindle. Bing offers up some sandwiches that can help her sleep, but he has something better, a song. And it's the one that brought Irving Berlin his ninth nomination, the song Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. It harkens back to the lullabies that Crosby sang in the 1930s, including Pennies from Heaven and Sweet Leilani. Only this one is sung to an adult. But it's no less effective. After Bing sings solo, They have a brief conversation about their worries and Bing is afraid that being Rosemary Clooney's White Knight is too much to handle. That's when she reprises the song and by the end, they kiss and count their attraction to each other as a blessing.
5: When I'm worried and I can't sleep I count my blessings instead of she I fall asleep Counting my blessings When my bankroll is getting small I think of when I had none at all and I fall asleep Counting my blessings I think about a nursery. And I picture curly heads, And one by one I count them As they slumber in their beds If you're worried and you can't sleep Just count your blessings instead of sheep And you'll fall all asleep, counting your blessings.
2: Do you mind if I say something just for the record? No, oh, of course not. I think what you're doing for the general is one of the most decent, unselfish things I've ever heard of. No angle. No angle. No. I won't apologize for the way I sounded in Florida. I guess I've always been kind of a silly schoolgirl. You know the bit, the, yeah. the lady fair and the knight on the white horse.
5: Let me tell you something. It's kind of dangerous putting those knights up on white horses. Likely to slip off, you know.
2: I think mine's there to stay.
5: Well, that's sure good to know. Makes a fellow feel a little shaky to up there all alone on one of those bleached chargers.
3: And
2: you worry? Kinda. Of. If you're Sleep, just count your blessings instead of sheep,
5: and you will
2: fall
3: asleep. Counting your
6: blessings.
1: Of the eleven new songs that Berlin wrote for White Christmas, only two of them are not conceived and performed as part of a theatrical show. Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep is one of them, and that might have helped it snag that Oscar nomination. Plus, it's the song in which Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney's characters fall in love, which is often the turning point in a romantic film. The other song is The Best Things Happen When You're Dancing, a lovely moment for Danny Kaye and Vera Allen that made me think fondly of Cheek to Cheek, which is probably what Berlin had in mind, but it might have not been the best intention. Berlin was a well-known songwriter in Hollywood and with the public. On the opposite end of the spectrum were nominated songwriters Richard Myers and Jack Lawrence, earning their first nominations for the song Hold My Hand from the romantic comedy Susan Slept Here. Though Jack Lawrence was an unknown name when compared to the star power of Sammy Kahn, Irving Berlin, and Ned Washington, he had written some big hits in the 1940s. He introduced Dinah Shore to the world with her recording of his song, Yes, My Darling Daughter, in 1940. And Frank Sinatra's first solo hit record was All or Nothing at All, written in 1939 with lyrics by Jack Lawrence and music by Arthur Altman, but given new life by Sinatra in 1943. Lawrence had collaborated with Frank Churchill for the song Never Smile at a Crocodile for the Disney animated film Peter Pan in 1953, and then was connected with Richard Myers for the nominated song, Hold My Hand, the following year. Very little is known about Richard Myers, except that he was born in 1901 and had his most prolific period as a songwriter in the 1920s. In 1932, he wrote My Darling with Edward Heyman, and that song was used heavily in the movies throughout the 1930s. There's a gap in his songwriting history from 1937 all the way up to 1950, When Lawrence and Myers wrote Hold My Hand. It's likely the song never got performed or recorded for commercial use until 1954, when it was used for Susan Slept Here, because if it had, the song would not have been eligible for an Academy Award. The song appears during Christmas morning when Debbie Reynolds' Susan is making breakfast for Dick Powell's screenwriter Mark after spending the night in his apartment. Susan is there as a research subject for a possible new script for Mark about a juvenile delinquent. The song plays on the radio while Susan makes eggs and bacon, while Mark wakes up after sleeping on the couch.
4: And now, Hold My Hand, sung by Don Cornell. So this
6: is the kingdom
4: of heaven.
6: So this is the sweet promised land While angels tell of love Don't break the spell of love Hold my hand So this is the garden of Eden In dreams it was never so grand Let's never leave again Adam and Eve again Hold my hand This is the secret Of what bliss is For bliss is what your kiss is At last I understand The kingdom of heaven, and here on the threshold we stand. Pass through the portal now, we'll
5: be immortal now,
6: hold my
1: hand. Hello? Susan Slept Here is a romantic comedy though having a 35-year-old male lead and a 17-year-old female lead makes it a little far-fetched. But romance does happen even though it starts with Mark marrying Susan as a marriage of convenience, but later staying married to her for love. Susan convinces Mark that he's in love with her during romantic dinner that night. Hold My Hand plays in full on the record player during the beginning of the scene.
6: So this is the sweet promised land While angels tell of love Don't break the spell of love Hold my hand So this is the garden of Eden In dreams it was never so grand Let's never leave again, Adam and Eve again Hold my hand This is the secret of what bliss is For bliss is what your kiss is At last I understand So this is the kingdom of heaven And here on the threshold we stand Pass through the portal now We'll be immortal now my hand so this is the kingdom of And here on the threshold we stand pass through the portal now we'll be mortal now. Oh,
1: When Hold My Hand appears in the film the first time, Susan is more in love with the man singing it. That man is Don Cornell, a real-life singer who had a couple of gold records in the 1950s. Hold My Hand was his third song to sell more than a million copies, and it peaked at number five on the U.S. Billboard charts in fall 1954, two months after the movie premiered. It went to number one in the U.K. at the same time. Jack Lawrence also wrote the title song to the film, which was definitely written for the movie and has a similar feel to High Noon in that it tries to sum up the plot of the movie. It's sung from Mark's point of view, praising Susan for enriching his life personally and professionally.
2: There's a kind of special house with a kind of special room with a kind of special atmosphere with a click of the old clock. Go and take a, ticket a talk, shh. Susan slept here Oh, I can't describe the house And I can't describe the room But the atmosphere is warm and dear With a friendly whippoorwill Singing on her windowsill, shh Susan slept here Sunlight kisses her shoulder That's one light I'm jealous of Jealous
0: cause you hold my love
2: I'm an ordinary guy with extraordinary
0: luck Cause it's Susan who's in my career
2: And I'm taking up a sign on the ticker of mine Susan, Susan, Susan's left here
1: This movie marked Dick Powell's final acting performance. He had already been moving over to directing and would make that official with the John Wayne film The Conqueror in 1956. Powell had sung one of the versions of the Oscar-nominated song Jeepers Creepers in 1938 and was one of the few actors brave enough to break a studio contract over the roles he was offered. Powell would direct five movies before succumbing to cancer in 1963. Debbie Reynolds, on the other hand, had a great career that would continue with the unsinkable Molly Brown about 10 years later. Director Frank Tashlin used parts of the plot for another romantic comedy called Bachelor Flat in 1962. And that's a very diverse list of nominated songs from 1954. The biggest musical of the year, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, featured songs by Gene DePaul and Johnny Mercer, but none of them got on the Oscar ballad. The film itself received five Academy Award nominations, including one for the score that only listed Chaplin and Adolf Deutsch as a nominee. The movie has become more famous for Michael Kidd's revolutionary choreography than its songs, even though it was a completely original film musical and catnip for the music branch. Mercer had not written a full-scale movie musical score for many years, and wasn't successful on Broadway with St. Louis Woman in 1946 and Texas Little Darlin'* in 1949. But many regard Seven Brides for Seven Brothers as a monumental effort in song and dance, but not enough to get any of the songs individually recognized. If the voters were to decide the winners of the best song based on how they heard them at the Academy Awards Ceremony on March 30th, 1955, Four of them might have been disappointments, since the celebrity performers who originated the songs did not perform them that night. Only Johnny Desmond and whistler Muzzy Marcelino came to sing The High and the Mighty. Frank Sinatra was at the ceremony as the presenter of the Supporting Actress Award by virtue of winning Best Supporting Actor the year before, but he declined Sammy Kahn's request to sing Three Coins on the telecast, giving the job to future Rat Pat buddy Dean Martin. Judy Garland was never asked to sing The Man That Got Away because she was eight months pregnant and unlikely to hit the big notes that the song demanded. She wouldn't have been able to do it anyway. She gave birth to son Joey Luft on March 28th, two days before the show. Rosemary Clooney did a decent job singing it at the ceremony. Bing Crosby was also at the ceremony as an acting nominee and presenter, but he said he would only present the music awards, not sing count your blessings. Peggy King handled duties in his place, likely nervous singing the song with Crosby in the audience. It's not known if Don Cornell was asked to sing Hold My Hand, but it was Tony Martin who sang in his place. The ceremony began with the performance of the Trolley Song for some unknown reason. Yes, Judy Garland was a nominee, but she had sung two Oscar-winning songs that would have been better choices. The music awards were set to be handed out near the end of the ceremony, making the songwriters just as anxious and impatient as the actors waiting to know if they were Oscar winners. As I said, it was Bing Crosby who presented the music awards, and he decided he didn't need to read off any of the nominees in either category. He just took the envelope and read the winning names. Dmitry Tiomkin got the biggest applause of the night. Not for winning Best Dramatic Score for The High and the Mighty, but for, quote, thanking my colleagues, Johann Brahms, Johann Strauss, Richard Strauss, Mozart, George Gershwin, and many others who weren't alive to hear his thanks. Tiomkin later said he didn't intend to make a funny speech, though he was genuinely thanking those composers and praising them as his heroes. Next up was the Song Award, and I'm sure Bing was hoping to see Irving Berlin's name in the envelope but it was first-time winners Jewel Stein and Sammy Kahn who heard their names called for writing three coins in the fountain. After nine previous losses in this category, it's understandable that Kahn was soaking up the moment. In his acceptance speech, he said, I counted 27 steps from my seat to the podium. It took us 14 years to get here. Finally, Sammy Kahn and Jewel Stein have entered their losing streak at the Oscars. And that seemed to be enough for Stein. After accepting his Oscar for Three Coins in the Fountain, he severed his ties with Sammy Kahn and headed to Broadway to write a musical review with Betty Compton and Adolph Green and felt he could advance his art as a composer better with stage shows. By the way, Judy Garland didn't win an Oscar for her work in A Star is Born. Groucho Marx made one of the best comments about that saying it was the greatest robbery since Brinks, in reference to the 1950 theft of $2 million from the Brinks building in Massachusetts. Grace Kelly's work in The Country Girl was declared the winner that year, and most Oscar historians continue to point to that as one of the most blatant snubs in Oscar history. Well, remember that I mentioned that Warner Brothers did next to nothing to promote Judy Garland for the Oscar after believing the film to be a flop and not worthy of Oscar attention. So, was it Judy's well-known temperamental tardiness on set that did her in, Or was it Warner Brothers' blasé approach to campaigning for the movie? Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep marks Irving Berlin's final Oscar nomination. He was nominated twice for creating the stories for Holiday Inn and Alexander's Ragtime Band, and seven times for songwriting. Hollywood felt that Berlin's song catalog had been used and reused so many times in movies that another one like There's No Business Like Show Business and White Christmas to an extent wasn't going to attract audiences. White Christmas made a lot of money, more than $6 million, but There's No Business Like Show Business flopped, even though Marilyn Monroe tried her best to bring something to the proceedings with a performance of Berlin's heat wave. Berlin simply couldn't get his foot into a studio executive's door anymore. So Berlin went back to Broadway and tried to finish a long, gestating musical called Wise Guys. It never got produced, and was seemingly the final cue that Irving Berlin was no longer the songwriter to call when you needed a hit. Luckily, Berlin owned the rights to every song he wrote, and the royalties were enough to keep him very wealthy. White Christmas, on his own, brought in about half of his annual $100,000 royalty check. The American Film Institute picked The Man That Got Away as the 10th best movie song of the first 100 years, and Three Coins in the Fountain became a jazz standard for decades. And the other songs aren't too shabby either. Send me an email to jeffswim at AOL.com to let me know what you think, or contribute to the conversation on Twitter at Best Song Podcast. Thanks everybody for singing along with me on this episode, and... I look forward to doing it again next time.
0: The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.